Welcome to the Runner's World Show. I'm Editor-in-Chief David Willey. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, we've got the lowdown on how mere mortals can become world record holders. And, of course, we've got a buzzy roundup of this week's news in the kick. But first, we have an interview with Dave McGillivray, who you may know as the race director for the Boston Marathon. Dave is also a bit of an icon in the running community in his own right, and he's got more great stories about a life spent in running than I've ever heard from anyone else before. Fun fact, as a teenager, young Dave McGillivray ran his first Boston Marathon as a bandit. That's coming up next. Don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. Dave McGillivray has been working on the Boston Marathon since 1988, and he's been the race director since 2001. But Boston is just one of his gigs. He's organized more than 900 events, including races like the Beach to Beacon 10K in Maine and the Falmouth Road Race in Massachusetts. We are working with him on the new Runner's World Classic, a weekend of running this July in North Andover, Massachusetts, that includes a 5K, 10K, and half marathon. As a runner, Dave has done some amazing things. He's run across the United States twice to raise money for charity, and each year on his birthday, he runs his age in miles. He was born in 1954, so you can do the math. Before Dave put on his 28th Boston Marathon this past Monday, and also ran his 44th, I talked with him about how he became a runner and how a lowly rope changed the course of his career. Dave McGillivray, welcome to the Runner's World Show. Thanks for having me on, David. And I just want to ask you, let's go back to the beginning. How, how did you get started running? Because when you when you were a kid, running actually wasn't your first love when it comes to sports. Well, for me, when I was a young boy growing up in my hometown of Medford, Mass., I always wanted to be one thing and one thing only, and that was an athlete. And But unfortunately, I was sort of challenged in in a way that it was just difficult to overcome, and my challenge was that I was vertically challenged. And then I'd go out for high school sports and wanted to make the basketball team or the baseball team, and inevitably I'd get cut um, many times, the very last one. And so I just felt I, there needs to be a, a better way, another path. And that's when I started to run um, religiously because I would run to train for the other sports, but that didn't get me too far. So. Nobody can cut you from running. And so I just continued to run, and I've run about 150,000 miles since then and launched my running career that way. So after cross-country, what was what was the next thing that cemented running as the sport that uh, was going to be the passion of, of your life? Was it, I think, your 12th birthday? Yeah, well, again, I, I always set personal physical goals for myself, trying to break the Guinness Book of Records for sit-ups and push-ups. I was always testing myself. Um, wait, wait. You, you, did you break those records? Did you get into the Guinness Book at one point for those things? I didn't. There's, you know, I was doing the sit-ups one day in my living room, and my mother called me to come have dinner, and I didn't want to disappoint her, so I just stopped. You know, things like that would happen. And but I. How many sit-ups had you done at that oh, point? Oh, there were well over 5,000. Oh, 5,000 consecutive steps. Yeah, yeah, and the record at the time was like 7,000, and now it's probably in the twenty or 30,000 kind of a thing. 
So it was just, I needed to challenge myself because I wasn't making all the other sports. I needed to find another, another way. And that's what I would, that's what I would do. And then when I turned 12 on my birthday, there's a pond you know, where I live called um, Wright's Pond and Spot Pond. And it's to run to the pond, run around and run back was six miles. So I did it in the morning, just, just as a workout. And then later on in the day, after having cake and ice cream and my grandfather brought me to the ice cream shop, which is right ne- next to the pond. I said, I should probably go run this off. And I did. And I ran 12 miles on my 12th birthday. And then when I turned 13, I thought, what I do when I turned 12? I ran my age in, in miles. So I did 13 and then 14 and 15. And then like a lot of things with me, once I start something, um, I it it's almost like I become obsessed with it, but not in a negative way, in a positive way. And um, I just have continued that for the last 50 years. Okay. And in 1972, the Boston Marathon hit your radar screen, and you were running cross-country at Medford High School at that point. How did you first become aware of of the Boston Marathon? Well, I would hear about it on the radio all the time and see a little bit on TV, but it was the radio that hit me. And it was in 1970 when Ron Hill from England won. He ran 210-10. And that just struck me. I said, wow, that's pretty amazing that a guy could run 26 miles and do it in two hours and 10 minutes. And then when I was a senior in high school and I was running on the cross-country team and indoor and outdoor track, it just, I woke up one day and just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run that race. So that's when I made the phone call to my grandfather, who was a supporter of my athleticism, and he lived right near the Boston Marathon course. And I said, Grandpa, I'm going to go run that race in Boston. He said, well, great. He says, I'll meet you cool at Connor. I said, that's great. Where's that? <laughs> and he said, uh, right around 24 miles. And he lived right near there. So he just leave his apartment and walk to that location. And so, I, and again, you know, at the time, there were no qualifying standards to speak of, and but you had to be 18. And I remember calling the Boston Garden and talking to Jock Simple the day before saying, hey, I want to run in the marathon tomorrow. And he says, how old are you, lad? And I said, 17. Oh, you can't run. You have to be 18. I said, okay, thank you, Mr. Semple. And I hung up. And I said, I'm still going to do this thing. You know, so I guess you could call me a a bandit. Um, but again, in a different way. It was more age than it was qualification. Yeah. So my brother drove me out, dropped me off, and we took off. Or I had, took had off. you done any training <clears throat> for the distance at all? No, the furthest I had ever run nonstop was 11 miles, although I had done my birthday mile collectively in a day. I'd run more than that. You know, I mean, I was 17, so I'd run at least close to 17 miles, 16 miles, probably the furthest I ran on on splits throughout the day. What did I know at the time? Right. That was the problem. Right. I was naive. I was ignorant. And I, I just, again, one who always challenged himself, I said, I'm going to go do this. And then I get the, to the hills in Newton, and down I went at around 18 and a half miles, and I got taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance. And I called my parents up from the hospital and I said, come pick me up. They said, where are you? I said, I'm in the hospital. And they, what are you doing there? I said, never mind, just come pick me up. Did they not know you were gonna run the marathon? They, I didn't tell them, you know. <laughs> um, I just got up and left, right? Because my fear was that, you know, it would make my parents nervous and I didn't want to put them through that. Yeah. So I just didn't let them know. And then, um, but you knew your grandfather was going to be waiting for you absolutely. at Coolidge Corner. So they picked me up, and I said, "Can you drive me back where I dropped off?" And they said, "Why?" And I said, "Because 
grandpa's waiting for me. And they said, no, we're going to take you home. So you dropped out before Coolidge Corner on the I course, did. right? I did. Yeah, probably on close to six miles before that. So I went home and I called my grandfather, no answer. And I called him again, no answer. And around nine o'clock at night, he answered the phone. And I said, Grandpa, where have you been? He goes, where have you been? So I've been waiting for you all day. You know, the old man goes by, Kelly, and the street sweepers go by, and no Dave. I said, I know I uh, quit. You know, I, I failed. He says, you what? I said, I failed. He says, no, you didn't. I said, what I do? He says, you learn. I said, great, what did I learn? He said, you learn that you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. He said, it's great to have goals, but you have to earn the right to do them. And I said, good point. And he said, I'll cut another deal with you. I said, what? He says, you train for this thing. You officially register, and I'll be there waiting for you next year. And I said, fine. We cut the deal. And then two months later, he he died. And um, so I was 18 years old, and I was just somebody who was determined to do this in memory and honor of him. So I was running 120, 130 miles a week as an 18-year-old. I was a freshman at Merrimack College in North Andover, and I said, I'm doing this. My parents were supportive of that. And as luck would have it, the day before the race, I was officially registered. I got a stomach virus, and my parents said, you can't run. I said, I have to run. The newspaper's saying, Dave, running in memory of grandfather. And they said, well, you're just too sick. I said, well, can you give me something that very few other people have ever given me? And they said, what's that? And I said, a chance. Can you just give me a chance? I mean, I, I know I don't feel well today, but tomorrow's a different day. So they said, okay, fine. So they dropped me off at the start, and gunfires, I take off, and I'm running, I'm running, and I get to five miles, and I said, this is awful. You know, I just feel so sick. Then I got to the halfway point, and I saw my parents, and there's my mother crying, because that's what mothers do, because they worry about you, and so they're going through more pain than you are. But then there's my father taking pictures of my mother crying, and kind of validated what I was doing, and I finally I got to the point where I dropped out the year before, and I was Heartbreak Hill area, and I was doing the Survivor Shuffle over the hills, and but I knew I was running out of fuel here, and I didn't know whether I was going to make it. And finally, I crossed Boston College area, and down I went again, 21 and a half, dropped out of my second Boston Marathon. And I just started thinking about, you know, there's a guy who wants to be an athlete. He gets cut from everything. He's always the last pick. No one wants him. Then he becomes a runner, and he drops out of his first Boston he drops out of his second Boston. And am I destined to fail in life? And and then a defining moment came. And I realized I was in a place where I didn't think I had ever been before. But then I looked behind me and there's the Evergreen Cemetery. And that's where they buried my grandfather. And there's his tombstone right there. And I thought, my goodness, this, this guy said he was going to be there. And maybe he wasn't there physically because... He taught me that it's not just about the physical person, but he was there spiritually. And I thought he kept his end of the bargain. I got to keep mine. And I picked myself up and finished in four and a half hours, 1973 Boston Marathon. And I said to myself, I'm going to run this race every year for the rest of my life in honor and tribute of the lesson that my grandfather taught me about earning the right to do these things. And I kept my promise. So your grandfather's name, Fred Eaton, yes. right? Mm -hmm. How old was he when he died? He was in his uh, late 60s, so he wasn't, you know, conventionally speaking, he wasn't that old. But, yeah. Yeah. How did you become a race director? You started Dimsey in 1981. Mm -hmm. How did you decide 
to become a race director? I call them defining moments. I call them, you know, just uh, opportunities by default. Everyone has a different reason why they morphed into this. And I said, hey, this is pretty cool. I'm going to start a business and putting on events, mass participatory athletic events. And people thought I was nuts because they thought you can't make money. You can't, as a profession, put on a road race and make money. I said, you, 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 wait, you know, you want to bet? watch what happens. But I had an uncanny um, sense that this really wasn't about putting on road races. This was about making people feel good about themselves. Again, raising the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. And I knew then that eventually people were going to get it, that the walls of intimidation were going to crumble and people were going to finally realize that the most important person on the planet is themselves is themselves. You have to take care of yourself. That's what you're seeing in this industry right now. A hundred percent, I'm convinced of it. It's not as much the competitive side of it per se. It's just the feeling that you get when you set a goal, accomplish it, and go home. And so each year throughout this time, you're running the Boston Marathon as a competitor. How did you get the job that you have now? You know, Unfortunate situations sometimes create opportunities. And in the 1987 Boston Marathon, there was a wheelchair accident on the first hill of the course. And then there was a tripping incident with the, the defending champion at the time, Rob DiCostello from Australia. And then the BAA just felt that this Tripping thing, incident, what do you mean? Um, they used to put up a rope at the starting line to keep the runners back until the right before the gun fired, and you move the rope, and you fire the gun, and off they go. Well, the race used to start at high noon every year, so the official starter said, okay, it's almost high noon, time to shoot the gun. Well, they didn't remove the rope, they shot the gun, and that's when Rob uh, tripped and did a, a tumble and came back up on his feet and ended up finishing fifth that year after winning the year before, but that was a situation where we can't have that happen again. So they, that's when they brought me in to, to do that, and I implemented a whole new control start for the wheelchair division just to make sure we salvage this and make sure there's no incidents anymore. We, I got rid of the rope um, and put a human chain of volunteers there. I facetiously say all the time, I all, all I did was come in, get rid of a rope, and I've had the job for 29 years. <laughs> what is your day like? What's your job like? And what, what Every day on Patriot's Day, just walk us through what that's like for you. When does it begin and what's that experience like and how does it end? Um, so a lot of it is about delegation. And people say to me um, that I'm the race director, but I use the analogy I'm more like the conductor of an orchestra. And there's these you know, experienced musicians that each have a specific discipline that they need to pay attention to. But I just need to make sure that it all comes together in a harmonious fashion. They all work well together. And, um, and then it comes out in, in a, in, as, a, as a good end product. So that's sort of generally what my role is. So I try to get there early on, just make sure things are set up. And then I'm, I'm the one who basically handles the start of all the different divisions. And then I jump on a lead motorcycle, and then the, the first wave goes, and down course I go. I have to be in the action, not as an observer of the race. I'm not really paying attention to the road race itself. I'm paying attention to everything around it. I want to see firsthand what's going well, what isn't going well. If I can be in a position to fix something that's broken or prevent something from happening that hasn't occurred yet, but I can see it and if I don't fix it, it's going to. 
uh, just to kind of get a sense for what's going on out there. That's my take on this. Okay, so after the Boston Marathon ends, this race that you direct and this orchestra that you conduct, you you turn around, you go back to the start, and and then you run the race yourself. Well, why do you do that? I made a commitment in 1973 when I finished that I'm going to run this race every year for the rest of my life. And my motto in life has always been, it's my game, so it's my rules. So I don't have to do it like everyone else. So I want to make sure my number one priority certainly is the race and making sure everyone is okay. And, you know, we're on automatic pilot. I don't wait till the very last person finishes, but now I wait close to the very last person. And it seems like we're okay. So it's time to head back out to do it myself. So I, I ran it 15 years in a row and then I got the job. And then when I got the job to help direct it, I was standing at the finish line watching the runners finish, elated for them, but feeling disappointed for myself. Now, a little bit of self-pity there that I'm not doing this. I'm a lousy spectator. So I tapped the state police trooper on the shoulder and I said, officer, you do me a favor. He said, what? So you drive me back to the start. He goes, why did you forget something? I said, yeah, <laughs> forgot to run. So he drove me back out and dropped me off eight o'clock at night. And by myself, I ran the whole thing and finished at a little after 11. And so for the last 28 years, effectively, that's what I've done. I've been the last finisher of the Boston Marathon, for the most part, for the last 28 years. Anything you do special when you go by Coolidge Corner or the cemetery? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly when I go by Evergreen Cemetery, I just give the uh, sign of the cross and I just give my grandfather a nod. I try not to make it a big spectacle. Just want to make it more of a subtle thank you for teaching me how to do this. Sadly, even with running, there can be too much of a good thing. We've all been there. Your running stagnates and just getting out the door for a few easy miles feels like a chore, not something that you want to do. You're burned out. Our training and races editor, Megan Keita, was feeling that way last year, but instead of backing down, she decided she wanted to set a world record. I know what you're thinking, but it's not as preposterous as it sounds because there are world records and there are world records. Here's Megan with editor Brian Dalek. My official record title is Fastest Marathon Dressed as a Fast Food Item Female. And so what... Exactly, were you dressed as? So I applied to Guinness for fastest marathon dressed as a hot dog. It was a new record. Uh, I used that record because I already had the hot dog costume. Uh, and they got back to me a few weeks later saying, you can't do fastest marathon dressed as a hot dog, but you can go for fastest marathon dressed as a fast food item female. They have separate records for male and female. Um, and I believe they did that because it was a little bit of a broader definition of fast food. I don't know that over in the UK that they have hot dog costumes. They might have kebab costumes. So the, the record was more inclusive so that it could be a truly world record and not just an American record. At that time, they also gave me 4.30 as the time to beat. They don't like just to let you finish, which... You would think it's a new record. 
just finishing a marathon in a hot dog costume should be enough of an accomplishment. Not the case. They want to make it a little harder than that, so they gave me 4.30. Describe what that looks like. Like, Obviously, it looks like a hot dog, but <laughs> as far as on your body, how is that? how is that feel and how is that to run with? Well, it's made of foam, which is not a breathable material at all. Good for running, yeah. Oh, in fact, I learned that water runs right off it um, because I tried to dump some over my head while I was running, and uh, it did not help at all. But anyway, um, the hot dog itself is uh, like a dark red foam, and it goes you know, up over my head like a hood, and there's a, a hole in the top of the the hot dog where my face pokes through. At the top of the hot dog. Yeah. yeah, yeah. With, you know, like a hood to to create that hot dog shape. Um, and then the bun kind of puffs out from my shoulders. It's, uh, you know, a lighter tan mm-hmm. foam. Like a bun. Like a bun. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, you know, a little voluminous. It almost reminds me of one of those prom dresses from the 80s with, you know, your sleeves are real big. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that kind of situation. So um, it's it's a little bulky and it, you know, covers your head, which is fine if you're just walking around. But if you're running, it gets kind of hot. And how far down does it go? Um, it goes past my knees, which actually was one of the requirements that Guinness put forth for this fast food item costume. Um, if you are going to try to do one that's like a short hot dog, that's not allowed. That's too easy. It needs to go down past your knees. Um, but luckily, it's not super restrictive down there, so it let me run pretty freely. Um, there's plenty of space to to extend my legs. So. And there's mustard on the hot dog. Too. Oh yes, there is a squiggle of mustard that goes down the bodice, um, and that is just a normal fabric material, but it's on top of foam, so really, it doesn't add any extra breathability. What made you think? I can go for a Guinness World Record. Well, what inspired me was uh, Camille Heron, who is a professional runner. She's best known for being an ultra marathoner. But a couple of years ago, she ran a marathon dressed as Spider Woman, and she actually won the race. So it made it made national news. Runners World covered it online, and I saw that and I thought. That's just so fun. Like, look at this lady just having fun with her running. I want to have fun with my running. Uh, At the time, I was kind of burnt out from doing too many marathons and, you know, really striving for a time goal and failing to, to reach that time goal over and over. And I thought, you know, let me look into this Guinness World Record thing. Maybe there are some records that are achievable. Maybe it's not you know, important to be able to win a marathon to set one of these records. And when I did a little more research, I found out that was definitely the case. What stands out is the toughest thing doing Marine Corps in a hot dog costume? Physically, the toughest thing was just the heat. Um, It was a warm enough day that by mile 20 or so, people started taking their shirts off and I couldn't take anything off. I couldn't even put the hood down to let some air come out the top of my head. Uh, It was just sweltering in there. Uh, Mentally, though, I would argue this was harder. Um, Just the nonstop attention from spectators. You don't realize what a privilege it is to be anonymous when you're hurting uh, until you are no longer anonymous and you're hurting and you just want to 
you know, put your head down, get to the finish line, and every two seconds somebody's like, look, it's a hot dog. Wow, <laughs> hot dog person. Aren't you hot in there? <laughs> and I'm sure there were a lot of bad jokes. Oh, tons of bad, bad puns jokes. and jokes. You know, you got to catch up. Um, that was that was pretty much the one people could come up with the quickest. Mm -hmm. So you get to the finish line. Your finishing time again was three fifty-seven forty-nine. What are do you know what your odds are of actually being in the book the next time it comes out? Well, there are forty-five thousand Guinness World Records, and in this year's edition of the book, there was only one page of running records. I'm not exactly sure how many records were on that page, but not that many, you know, right. probably 50 or so. But you did get a certificate. Like, this I is did. proven. Oh, I have the certificate. I'm on their website. It's in my Twitter bio, so it has to be true, right? Yeah. Where, where do you hang the certificate? Uh, the, it's hanging in my office right now. Proudly above your desk, I'm sure. Oh, yes. It's, yeah. it's every time someone comes in, I'm like, look at my certificate. <laughs> Would you do it again, either dressed as a hot dog or maybe something else, go for a different record? The only thing I would consider is going for a half marathon record dressed as a hot dog. I don't want to run another full marathon dressed as the hot dog, even if someone breaks my record. It was just unpleasant for me. It was too far. But the half marathon record, I would absolutely go for that. And I actually tried to get it approved uh, to go for that record at the Brooklyn Half Marathon because it ends on Coney Island. How perfect would that be? But New York Roadrunners sadly said that no costumes were allowed in their races. So just backing up a little bit, you said you did this because you were burned out. What happened to you and how did that, how did that feel for you? I'm fairly certain my burnout was caused by running way too many marathons. That is... 15 of them in a little over six years. Uh, the last two were really serious PR attempts. I had trained really hard for both of them, um, didn't hit my goal on the first one. So I said, I'll try another one a few months later. And after that second one, I was just really, really beat up and sad that I hadn't made my goals and really tired of training seriously. For me, burnout was looking at the workouts I had on my schedule and not wanting to do any of them. Uh, I was okay with maybe going out for a short, easy run at a comfortable pace, but anything more serious than that or anything that would take longer than like 45 minutes, I had, I wanted nothing to do with that. So Megan, that was your experience with burnout. But when we talk about burnout, what do we mean exactly? I would say that burnout just means feeling negative feelings towards your your training, whether that means you dread going out for a run, whether it means that you get out for your run and you hate every minute of it, or you quit and you go home early, uh, whether it means you break down crying in the middle of a run, not that I've ever done that. Yes, I have. Um, you know, it's any kind of any kind of emotion that's that's negative when you're not enjoying your running anymore, that's burnout. So you countered your burnout with this crazy Guinness World Record attempt. If someone wanted to follow your lead, what are, say, your top three tips? First of all, you're going to need to submit an application to Guinness. It can take them up to 12 weeks to process an application, so get that going far in advance of race day. You're going to want to tell them where you're going to attempt your record and what record you want to break. 
and you can choose from records that already exist or you can try to make up your own record and within 12 weeks you'll know whether you've been approved. The second step is to figure out how you're going to document your attempt. There are three different ways that Guinness will allow you to do that. You need to choose the one that's best for you. The third step is to train in the costume. You don't want any surprises on race day. You want to know where you have to body glide yourself. So spend some time running in the costume, even if it's just one or two races in advance, um, to, to figure out the logistics of wearing it and how to make it less unpleasant to run in the costume. You can read Megan's feature story on her world record marathon on our website, and you can see photos of her in that hot dog costume at runnersworld.com audio. My favorites are the shots from every single mile marker during the marathon. You can totally see her mood ebb and flow as the race progresses. You'll also find more information on how to set your own Guinness World Record. And just so you know, there currently is no Guinness World Record for the fastest half marathon run by a fast food item, male or female, at least not according to our in-house expert. So have at it. Okay, it is time for the kick when we round up the most interesting and important stories we've been following around the office over the past week. I'm here with Christine Fennessy. Hey, Christine. Hey, David. Although I guess I shouldn't say in the office because you and I, along with several of our colleagues, were up in Boston because the story of the week was the Boston Marathon, of course. Five things that we took away from Boston we feel like listeners should know for their next group run conversation. Number one, lack of big name Americans leading up to the race. Meb Kofleski was in town, but he wasn't running. Shalane Flanagan was in town. She wasn't running. Desi Linden was also there. Amy Craig was there. So those are four members of our Olympic marathon team. We're not there to run the Boston Marathon. The most athletic thing they did was throw out the first pitch at Fenway Park. That's because of a little bit of unlucky timing with the Olympic marathon trials, which were late this year in Los Angeles in February. And of course, the Olympics are this summer in Rio, so they need to save themselves. But Really, that, that storyline got overshadowed pretty quickly uh, by the weather. Big story number two. For sure. Definitely. 69 and sunny. Made it a great day for spectating. Not so great for running. I felt so bad for the runners in Boston because for a day or two, they were obsessed with the weather forecast, as they always are. But it kept changing. It would go from highs in the mid-60s, which people felt like was doable, and then it would shift to highs in the 70s and people would freak out. And then it would shift back again. And alas, it ended up being a, a pretty hot day. And it seemed like the heat even affected the front of the pack, which brings us to storyline number three, the winners. The winner of the men's race was 21-year-old Lemmy Berhanu Haley from Ethiopia. He ran a 2:12:45, And the winner of the women's race was Atsade Besa. 29. She's also from Ethiopia, and she ran a 229.19. Okay, so two first-time Boston Marathon winners, surprise winners, fair to say. And I think if most people had to name the most dominant country in marathoning, it would be Kenya. But Ethiopians claimed five of the six podium spots in Boston, so maybe that's a sign of a little bit of balance of power shift. Okay, so those are the winners, but you also want to know the first Americans, right? 
Yeah, for sure. So the first American finisher of the men's race was Zachary Hine from Dallas. He finished 10th, very good, running 221.37. And our May cover model, Neely Spence Gracie, was the top American finisher in the women's race. And she ran uh, 235, and she finished uh, 9th. And I got to say, I love the backstory of Neely Spence Gracie. She was on our cover running with her dog Strider, and she was actually born on Patriots Day during the Boston Marathon when her father, Steve Spence, was running the race. He ended up finishing 19th that day and then went on to win the 1992 Olympic marathon trials. And here was Neely running her first Boston, her debut marathon, in fact. And, man, when she was coming down Boylston in those last 800 meters, she looked so strong. She looked like she was on a track. And she exceeded her both her goals, right? Yeah. I mean, she she just had a great day. She was so excited. She had her moment, too, in the beginning of the race. Right about the 10K mark, she and fellow American runner Sarah Crouch were actually leading the pack. Sarah and I competed in college together, so we're very comfortable running side by side. It's something that we've done for many years. And we were commenting back and forth saying, wow, we are leading the Boston Marathon. (laughs) We need to really take this in and uh, relish the moment. (laughs) We knew the race was going to get going at some point. One of the great things about marathons and big ones like Boston in particular, the incredible athletes at the front of the pack who win these races, the crowds go crazy for them as they should. But there were also some great, great stories from the middle of the pack and the back of the pack that didn't unfold until hours after the winners had finished. That's right. This year for the first time, there were two amputees from the bombings in 2013 who finished the race on foot. And the first one was Patrick Downs. In 2013, he was standing at the finish line with his wife watching when the bombs went off. He lost his left leg. His wife lost her left leg. He ran Monday's race in 5.56.46, and he became, in doing so, the first Boston bombing amputee to finish the race on foot. And it was a pretty powerful moment at the at the end when he embraced his wife. I think you said that was your favorite. Part. Yeah, I think it was. I, uh, w- when he crossed that line and and in, embraced his wife Jessica, who uh, in January had her lower right leg amputated. Uh, you know, her recovery has been really difficult. And you know, for a survivor of the bombings uh, to to run this race and finish it as Patrick did. But then also share it in that way. You know, you got the sense that he really was was running for Jessica and for himself and honestly, by extension, for the whole survivor community and really for the whole running community. It was an amazing story. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't end with him either. Uh, Adrian Haslett, she is the former Dancing with the Stars contestant. She finished uh, after nearly 10 hours on the course. Yeah, and you hear from amputee runners all the time that one of the toughest things, especially when it's hot, is when sweat gets down into the prosthesis and it causes chafing. But she still finished late at night, and she got tweeted at by President Obama, um, who said, Thank you, Adrian, for being Boston strong. Terror and bombs can't beat us. We carry on. We finish the race, which, of course, echoed probably the most famous line from his speech in Boston right after the bombings in 2013. We finished the race. Uh, Amazing that Adrian and Patrick did on Monday. 
Okay, final storyline coming out of Boston. Celebrities who ran the race. Always a good thing to talk about on your group run. And there were a bunch, as there always are in Boston. Bobby Carpenter, you may remember him, former hockey player. He ran a 346. Christy Turlington Burns was running with Scott Jurek. They ran together in 409. And this one's pretty cool. The football coach at Mississippi State's name is Dan Mullen. Never run a marathon before. He did a 428. Pretty impressive for a first-timer. We also ran into another celebrity. He didn't run Boston, but it sounds like maybe one day he wants to. It sounds like that. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Our video editor, Derek Call, ran into Kevin Hart. Uh, You know Kevin Hart. He's an actor, comedian. He was on our back page, I'm a Runner. Um, He's also a Nike Plus Run Club pacer, and Derek caught him uh, as he was about to lead a run along the Charles River, and he asked Kevin if he had any tips for marathoners. Well, you know what, man? People that run marathons are in a different ball game. So, uh, actually, I need tips from them so I can get to where they are. What I am is honestly inspired by what they do. I think it's really dope. Uh, I love the fact that in Boston, it's it's like it's the thing. It's it's what it's what people do. If you run and you do marathons, so I'm slowly working my way towards that. Man, you guys have inspired me to want to do better and do more. So I need tips from you. I can't give you guys tips. That's awesome. All right. Well. I know Kevin Hart is focused on running 5Ks, but it happens all the time. People jump from the 5K to the marathon, especially if they get inspired by watching something like the Boston Marathon. So, Kevin, if you are listening, you decide you want to take on a marathon, we are here for you, man. It's what I've learned. The road can be rough. The tides can turn. But if you work to know yourself, don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. And that's it for this week's Runner's World Show. If you're so inclined, we'd be grateful if you went on iTunes to rate this show and give it a review so that we can keep making it better. This episode was produced by Sylvia Ryerson with help from Brian Dalek, Christine Fennessy, and Rachel Swaby. The music you're hearing now and that you heard at the top of the show was written and performed by Thunderhoof. I'm Editor-in-Chief David Willey. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll join us next week when we'll have a conversation with Brogan and Boyan, co-founders of the grassroots fitness movement known as November Project. We'll even take you along on one of their famous Boston workouts. But full disclosure, you will hear hugs. It's all right if your heart is strong. Whether or not there's a number on your chest Always keep striving